Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 10th, 2016. The share ID for Friday, January 8th, is 8367. That's 8367. This morning, A Vision for You presents Fully Conceding to Our Innermost Selves, Step 1. In step one, we conceded powerlessness, the realization that we are doomed. Step one is about being powerless, about not being able to fix our problem of compulsive overeating. We come crawling into this program as a result of the frustration, despair, and constant defeat experienced when compulsively overeating. Our periods of abstinence are increasingly painful. We came to a willingness to take step one. The pain brings on this willingness. In step one, we've realized that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, effort, philosophy, morality, goals, or good intentions won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. We experience our powerlessness. Joining us this morning are four recovered compulsive overeaters who will share their experience coming to the conclusion of step one. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Our panelists this morning include Christine T., from New Jersey, Charles H. from New York, Nessa R. from Canada, and Carmela G. from New York. And let's get started without further ado with Christine T. Welcome. Christine, star one to unmute, please. <laughs> Not pushing star one. How are you? I'm great. Good morning okay. and thank you for your service. Thank you. I'm starting my timer. Okay. Uh, this morning I got up around 3.13. Uh, the rain first woke me up. I had been feeling real nervous about this morning's share. I wanted to do this perfectly the big book and totally impress all of you and do all my quotes. A few character defects, though, were sitting there. Perfectionism, egotistical, self-centered, people-pleasing. Last night, I spoke to my sponsor, and I asked her to wish me good luck. She said good luck, but, you know, there is no real luck. And that is why I woke up at 3.15 this morning. She's right. What my higher power guides me to say is what he wants me to say, not me. So I got up early and went for an hour walk on that treadmill, and then I meditated. Uh, My higher power came up uh, with something really beautiful this morning. He wants me to give you a disclaimer, okay? (laughs) And I'm going to do that before I begin. The story you are about to hear is a story I would never, ever, ever change or do differently. He has brought me through this process exactly exactly the way it was meant to happen. Everyone involved in this story, in these rooms as well as out of, out of these rooms, is, the, is very important to it. There are many people who I hold near and dear to my heart. I'm not angry, nor am I afraid this morning. I'm going to tell you it, it is 
possible. Um, I'm going to tell you it is so that possibly this is something, this story that you can learn from it. This is the path I have taken to get here, and I am extremely grateful as well extreme as extremely happy. And I'm, I, I wrote this down because I, you know, truly dictated on a treadmill. <laughs> you know, God is is really amazing. So I'm going to start reading the first two chapters and more about alcoholism. Most of us, on page 30, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily or mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had, full, we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we are alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion we are like other people are, or presently may be has to be smashed. And, um, and I will start my story uh, as quickly as I can, my diet history. Um, I basically um, was a pretty chubby kid. Um, I, at least I was told. I didn't know that, but people told me that. I just thought I was a normal, a normal little kid. Um, but I definitely, my parents told me. And I, actually, today I can recognize eating behaviors in a couple of things. I used to go to the five and dime and have fifty cents. I, that means uh, for penny, penny candy. That means I would have somewhere between forty you know, and 50 pieces of candy in a bag. I lived half a mile from that store. Do you know uh, that candy didn't make it home? Not any of those 50 pieces. Maybe a couple of bazookas. Um, uh, then uh, there was a bakery, and I would bike to the bakery on Sunday morning. There were four of us in the family. I would have to buy two for each person, so a total of eight items. Do you know I would buy two extra items and ask them to put it in a separate bag so I could eat them on the way home? I was somewhere between seven and nine years old. Um, also, I remember... Um, uh, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about how I uh, trick-or-treating um, Halloween. I would get two pillowcases full of uh, candy, and they were gone within a week, and my mother would be perplexed. So that's my beginning of what I know today. Back then, at that time, I had no idea why I did this. Um, so truthfully, I think around 18 or 19, I started dieting. I'm, I'm probably a size 20, and I want to be um, a size 14, 16, you know, hap happily, <laughs> just to fit in a normal clothing instead of having to wear men's jeans. Uh, so I go to Weight Watchers. I think maybe I went to three meetings, and, and it failed. I start a liquid diet. Um, within two months, I lose 30 pounds, and two months after that, I gain, uh, you know, 40. Um, I uh, get pregnant. I have a baby. I get married. Um, I deliver my first child. Those are my two diets I did um, at 297 pounds. I never lost that weight. I go to get pregnant a year later. A midwife tells me, um, you know, I, I lost my period because I'm so heavy. I'm 320 pounds. And this midwife tells me, no, um, I'm not giving you any drugs. 
uh, to get pregnant and hands me a meeting brochure. I go to my first OA meeting. And now this is my, is my powerlessness coming back and forth on a continual basis. I go to these meetings. They talk about uh, the food, a food plan, a pretty strict food plan. Um, they tell me don't eat, you know, no matter what, just don't eat. They talk about the steps. They read the steps, but they really talk about um, the tools. And so um, I get abstinent, and um, I lose 175 pounds, and um, I, I have to move. My husband gets a job. I move to New York. Um, I get pregnant because my period has come back. Um, and eventually, uh, after I move, I go to a couple of meetings, but I eventually walk out of the rooms. And uh, and basically, my eating gets worse, worse than ever before, because once I've picked it up, I cannot stop. So I will quote a sentence on page 31. In some instances, there has been brief recovery, followed always by still worse relapse. So at this point, I'm now back up to 320 pounds. I start a very famous program that has lots of points. I'm so fed up with myself. I go on this point system. Oh, this was a great system because, number one, I didn't have to give up any of those foods that I'm truly addicted to that I I really can't have in my food plan. And I save all my points all day long to be able to eat at night out of the freezer, which actually are probably the three categories that I shouldn't really be eating that aren't on my food plan today, I save every day. Well, that lasts a month. Every bit of weight I've lost, I gain double. Um, the next food plan I try is uh, shakes. Uh, you know, pouring a, a liquid shake down my mouth over a sink, of course I lose weight because the science of diets work, but not for me. I am a real compulsive overeater. No diet really works for me. But diets do work, the science of them. And um, and then I always thought about doing the bypass. You know, wanted to at 320 pounds, and I seemed to maintain that weight. But it didn't. It, I knew it would solve a symptom, but not a problem. So here I am back in the rooms. I moved to New Jersey. I've moved all over that East Coast, in and out of those rooms. I come back into these rooms. I find a, a meeting with a lot of abstinent people. I take the weight off. A year after I'm asking, I need more. I need more. They tell me, um, you know, basically, we, you know, it takes seven years <laughs> to do the steps. And, you know, some of these people I still love and adore. That doesn't, you know, what might work for them just didn't work for me. I'm a real compulsive overeater. So just working a food plan and the tools is not going to get me to stop. It's not going to stop me. So I come in and out of these rooms a couple of more times. My last sponsor um, tells me I'm almost at goal weight. And she says, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't, don't eat. I said, I need more. I need something more. And she said, I want to do the steps. And she said, well, I can't really help you with that. You're not supposed to do them for years. So she tells me, um, don't worry. When you get to maintenance, you can eat cake and cookies and have a glass of wine every now and then. But that's not okay for me. I can't do that. Okay? So, of course, I go out and I, I go off. I gain my 150 pounds back again. I'm 320 pounds two years ago, uh, wanting to commit suicide, rarely getting out of a pair of pajamas. My husband travels all over the world for business. We own our own company. I can travel with him whenever I want. I don't go on these trips. I sit home and I eat. I get food delivered. 
I am angry. I want to die. My kids no longer talk to me on a regular basis because I'm a pretty nasty person who's telling them how to live their lives. I then make a decision to come back into the rooms. And, of course, I go to one of the food sponsors I've had before in the past who, who have told me to wait to do the steps. Three weeks into it, this lovely woman sits next to me and tells me that basically, you know, she's seen that real compulsive overeaters truly cannot recover unless they do the steps as written in the big book. I look at her and I ask her, you know, truthfully, um, is this, um, I, I, I don't have to wait to do this? She says no. And, and basically 10 weeks later, I'm through the steps, at least on nine, working. And I've been working ever since. This has transformed my life. I no longer think of food as an option. This is, this is it. Every attempt in my life has failed in the past. Once I start, I had no control. And basically... On page 35, one of the last paragraphs, this is my answer. All went well for a time with every diet previously, but I failed to enlarge my spiritual life, which I have done in this past year or two years. And um, I live free from this compulsion today. You know, the other ways just didn't work for me. I'm a real compulsive overeater. I, this, this is mental, physical, spiritual Unless I take care of the discontent, this isn't going to work. And um, today, I'm happy. I'm happy. I live happy, joyous, and free life, as all these other people on this line do. But my past is my past, and it's my past, and I hope you learn from it. Um, I'm not angry at any of these people that took me down this road. I'm grateful today. I still talk to most of them. I, I just found a different way in these 164 pages, and it worked for me, and I passed. Thank you so much, Christine T. And now I welcome Charles H. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service, Charles H., a recovered visionary just for today. Um, thank you, God, for waking me up, waking my enemies up, waking my friends up, waking people up that didn't want to wake up. Um so the first qualifier, thank you for your qualification. That was excellent. Um, I just want to um, touch on uh, page 30. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief diets, and all that stuff, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grips grip of a progressive illness. Over any period of considerable period of time, we get worse, never better. And I could keep going and going and going. You could do that on your time. But uh, I, I got 12 minutes to try to convince myself one more day that the first step in recovery is sufficient. Right, I'm not even going to talk about the rest because I'm here. My job today is to carry the message that a real compulsive overeater must put down those alcoholic allergic foods in order for anything to happen. Um, I want to say this as well. Ain't nothing sweet in the first step 
about giving up control about specific um, alcoholic substances and ingredients that I am allergic to. I could say that. I, I didn't. And, and uh, you know, for example, I used to just say, you know, oh, yeah, uh, you, you working with a sponsor, hey, what's your, what's your alcoholic foods? I would I would generalize it because that's what the disease wants me to do because I really don't want to do it. Um, page thirty tells me I have no control five times and I still ain't listen. How much times I read that and still held on? For example, rice. I tried white rice, blue rice, green rice, red rice, purple rice, um, uh, beige rice, brown rice, all these types of rice, and I got like three um, food scales and I will never. Put rice on a food scale. I can't control that item. It got to go, but it took a long time for me to um, be willing to let it go. So I understand when when you know people come in the program and say, "How can how can I do that? I'm, I'm gonna wait till my higher power uh, do it." And no, your higher power is waiting on you to do it because nobody can do it for you except for you. Right, Charles, nobody can do it for you except for you. So I want to drill down before I start talking about my story um, in the doctor's opinion. Good old Dr. Silkworth. Five times he said he utilized that phrase, phenomenon of craving. Now, I know the mental obsession is a regular craving, but a phenomenon of craving is a rare, unusual craving that happens when I ingest those alcoholic allergic substances into my body. Knowing well is more than white flour. Knowing well is more than white sugar. I don't want to tell you what it is because I want to still hold on to it. Then I want to complain to a vision for you or complain in OA means that these steps don't work. But I ain't following instructions. So first of all, here here it is. Um, Most of us, Hold on, no, no, that's not, all right. One, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drink. The second time you hear phenomenon of craving in the doctor's opinion, after they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging, remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. Third time, they took a drink or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the appointment was not met. These men were not drinking were, were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Uh, the fourth time, there are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And five, the last time, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. So this is one, if there's one thing I'm trying to hammer down this morning as a message of recovery um, is I have to be, I have to be 100% honest with myself, when I'm turning this over to my sponsor, this is the only time I gotta do some writing, and and really do some searching in my brain. Yep, this. Yep, that. Yep, that ingredient. This, that, all that stuff. I gotta be 100% sure because if a, if if an individual comes and says, 
yeah, I want help, I want to put it down, I want to, because we hear that all the time, and I'm not knocking them because I'm there with them. But if I am not honest in this first step, there's no way I'm going to have any type of recovery, any chance, uh, very little chance, Dr. Silkwood says, um, for, for recovery. There's very little hope for recovery if I'm not able to put down those substances on my own, willingly, on my own. Um, let, let me tell you this. Um, I could I could tell you so many times about my eating history that, you know, I wanted to um, try this program. I came in November 2011, and, you know, my, my doctor said, hey, why don't you try Overeaters Anonymous? You're too young to be, you know, those those questions, what is it, 20, 21, what are those years of solution? Why do you drink like that? Why can't you moderate? Because I'm the real deal. I can't moderate. Um, it's not that I'm greedy. I, I got an illness. It's it's a disease, right? So, you know, 2011, I said, all right, all right, I'm going to try this thing. I went to a couple of meetings. I was scared. I was the only African-American in there. I used all the excuses. Um, I really didn't want to recover. So I said, okay, I'm going to buy some. I'm going to buy 12 uh, 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 low-fat uh, waffles and have that for breakfast. And then I was putting syrup, mounds of syrup on it. So I was like, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a whole lot of things that didn't work. I tried everything. I don't know about trying. I, I didn't stay with my mouth shut, but I tried a lot of things that didn't work. Unless I fully conceded to my innermost self, which, which, you know, even going to Virginia Beach, I seen you guys down there, and I had a resentment that they didn't have ketchup and orange juice. I was like, yo, these people are crazy. Don't they know a brother needs some? Hey, but you know what? Hey, I can tell you this. I don't need it. I'm still here. January 10th, 2016, a few months later, I'm still here. Catch up free. Juice free. I can't believe that. I used to drink, oh, my God, I used to drink three liters, liter sodas. I used to have um, extra large pizzas in one sitting. You know, I'm just sharing that to let you know that, you know, from there to today is unbelievable. That first step, that's why I call myself the doctor's opinion prince. I don't mind chopping it up with anybody. And there's so much bits and pieces in a doctor's opinion that I identify with. For example, um, the sensation is so elusive. What's the definition of uh, elusive, Charles H.? Something that you'll never get, something that you'll never catch. You know, it's it's easy for somebody to say, oh, yeah, you know, I won't jump off uh, – I won't jump off the roof, but how come it ain't easy to, to identify? Or oh, I won't smoke crack because that'll kill me. But but eating sugar is crack. Eating salt is crack. Eating those um those, those ingredients and allergic alcoholic substances is crack. So why do we do that? Why? Because we have an illness. And the first step we suggest is to stay away from those alcoholic allergic foods. And not to try to get into the rest of the steps, but this is the first step. And in order to take the, the rest of the steps or go through the process with a recovered person, you have to be free from those items. The reason why it won't work if you're not free from it is because your brain is still fogged up. You're still clogged up. And, yes, we do have fears. Yes, we do have resentments. Yes, we do have causes and conditions. But in order to, to, to take the program of action, we must be clear 
of those in, those those things that trigger the allergy. So, um, in closing, I just hope I hammered that down, that point down that um, Dr. Silkworth, you know, says, you know, he talks about psychology all through the doctor's opinions. He talks about needing a power greater than yourself. He talks about the program of action. But he hammers down, of course, an alcoholic ought to be free from his craving for alcohol. So I hope I did you guys justice this morning. Charles H., a recovered visionary, and I pass. Thanks for allowing me to do service. Thank you very much, Charles H. Nessa R., your turn. Good morning. My name is Nessa R., recovered in Toronto, Canada. Um, first, I want to say I am very humbled for, uh, by this opportunity to do service at this very wonderful meeting. So um, I have struggled with my weight ever since I can remember. My, my well-meaning parents put me on my first diet when I was a mere two years old, and that kind of set the stage for the rest of my life. And, of course, I grew up thinking that food and weight were my problem. You know, actually, that's not true entirely. For decades, I oscillated between believing that my problem was food and weight and believing that my problem was people and circumstances. So when I believed that food was the issue, like I would tell myself, if I was thin, I would be happy. If I was a size four, everything would be okay. When I believed that, I, I would seek diet, exercise classes, gym memberships, nutritionists, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, that did not work. Um, you know, I was able to lose the weight, but I was never able to keep it off. And so then I would try to control the food, purging, restricting, restricting and purging, binging and purging. I remember the last thing I tried before coming into OA was this super expensive six-month program that my husband signed me up for and made me go. Um, it sort of worked because in six months I only gained two pounds. Um, and the truth is that the more I exerted myself, the more out of control the food got until I could not control it anymore and it was controlling me. You know, in, in the chapter um, more of alcoholism, page 34, it says um, near the bottom, this is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it, leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. So, um, you know, I got married at 112 pounds after some crazy diet, and I came back from my two-week honeymoon 10 pounds heavier, and then my weight continued to climb from there um, until I reached almost 200 pounds, and I'm small at 5'1". Five, five so I honestly believe that if I was saying everything would be okay and I would be happy, and throughout my life, there were, very, were, there were brief, but very, very brief periods of time when I was thin, but I, I wasn't happy. I was as crazy and miserable as ever. And I did not understand that food was not my problem, but my solution to the discomfort that I really desperately wanted to avoid, no matter what the cost. So how did it work for me? Uh, if my car stalled, stole, I ate. If I had a fight with my husband, I ate. And the truth is that I only, the only thing my husband ever thought about was my weight. If my kids misbehaved, I ate. If my chip bounced, I ate. If I got a traffic ticket, I ate. And this solution did not work very well because I was getting fat, I was fat and I was getting fatter. Then there were periods when I thought that people and circumstances were my problem. Like, you know, if people did what they were supposed to do, if I had enough money, then I wouldn't be so stressed out and I wouldn't have to eat. So at those times, I saw psychiatrists and therapists, and sometimes I just 
tried to plain bulldoze my way through people's lives, mostly my loved ones, and of course that did not work. Nothing worked because my problem was not food or weight or people or circumstances. So when I came into it, I was broken, hopeless, and totally out of ideas. And here I learned that I have a disease and that it is rooted in my problem of powerlessness. I am powerless over my body, um, as I learned in the doctor's opinion, because it is afflicted with an allergy that makes me react abnormally and adversely to sugar, flour, sweeteners, and a bunch of other foods and textures. And for me, those are my, my triggers. So this allergy makes me crave more and more of these foods when I eat them. And so I eat and eat and eat and eat until I run out of food. That is the only way that I can stop eating. And there is absolutely nothing that I can do to change that. My body will always react this way to donuts and cheesecake and potato chips until the day I die, period. So if that wasn't enough, um, even though my body can't take it, my mind can't leave it alone either. It does not let me stay stopped. There is this persistent tape that plays in my mind telling me it's okay to get started again. It's okay to eat dangerous food. It offers me a million of convincing rationalizations why it is okay to take the first bite. And invariably, I succumb, and I'm back at step one, at square one, rather, uh, experiencing the craving all over again. And Dr. Silkworth described this very beautifully in the doctor's opinion, um, starting on page XXVIII, um, where he says, um, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that with the admitted injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, the alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. The drinks if they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as many do, the phenomenon, the phenomenon of craving develops and they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and that was definitely the case for me. So how do I get off this merry-go-round that only causes me and those around me pain and misery? Well, for me, it all starts with step one. Number one, I need to know and understand what my problem is. My problem is powerlessness. And the powerlessness that is rooted in a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body uh, which results from a spiritual emptiness. So I have to concede to my innermost self that I am, and more importantly, I will always be a compulsive overeater. I am not, and I will never be a normal eater. Mind you, the truth is that I never wanted to be a normal eater. I never wanted to be able to eat just one cookie or one slice of pizza. I always wanted to eat the way I ate. I wanted to gobble tons of ice cream, handful of candy bars, slabs and slabs of cheesecake, but not gain any weight. But that is not who I am. I am a compulsive overeater. I have no doubts whatsoever of who and what I am anymore. And as long as I remember, remember that, I'll be okay. And there were two people in my childhood growing up who were as fat as I was and ate like I ate. One was my best friend in elementary school and the other one was my cousin. And this is like over 35 years ago. They each independently, they, they didn't know each other. They um, decided to go on diets. 
and they lost all their weight, and they never looked back. They never looked back. To this day, they are in normal bodies 35 or more years later. And that was not me. And I always wondered, like, why can't they do it and I can't? You know, it turns out they were probably um, hard eaters, but I was the real thing. You know, I am a compulsive overeater, and I will always be. Um, you know, this kind of... Um, in retrospect, kind of helped me smash the delusion, as it says in page 30 of alcoholism, the delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed because I sure wasn't like my best friend or my cousin. Um, I just could not do it like they did. So how do I work step one? It's by staying abstinent. Um, the doctor's opinion mentions three times the importance of first and foremost becoming abstinent. First, in page XXBI, uh, I might get the pages a little bit wrong because I have a, a pocketbook um, version of the big book and the pages are, are kind of different. It says here, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached. Then the second time um, in page XXBII, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And the final time, and this is like totally unequivocal, it says, um, it has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only release we have to suggest is entire abstinence. abstinence. So, so think about it. Like an analogy that I like to use with my son Steve is that I'm powerless over fire. If I put my unprotected hand in an open flame, my hand will get burned. It's a law of nature and I cannot change it. So I am powerless over the fire. The only recourse to not get burned that I have is just to simply not put my hand in it. It's the same with the food. I cannot change the way my body reacts to my trigger food, so I just do, don't put my hand in, period. I can't change my body's reactions to certain foods, but I can stop eating them. Just like someone with a peanut allergy doesn't eat peanuts to avoid triggering their allergy. And then, secondly, once I do that, I would the steps as outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which will quiet that mental obsession that drives me to eat even after, after I have managed to stop. So um, in closing, I just want to say that nothing, absolutely nothing, can arrest this disease unless and until I put the food down, first and foremost. And then, then I work the steps every day of my life as if, as if my life depends on it because it does. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nessa R. And now I welcome our fourth panelist, Carmela G. Good morning, Alea, and thank you so much for allowing me to do this service this morning. And thank you all for those on the line, and welcome any newcomers. I'm Carmela G. from New York. And I am a compulsive overeater and food addict. Step one was one of the most difficult steps for me to take. And Christine read the first uh, part, the paragraph on page 30, that describes me to a T. The last sentence of the paragraph ending with, many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And I truly pursued it to near death. 
I um, believe that God gives us, and God is my higher power, God gives it to us when it's time for us to receive it. And I didn't get this program until I was 68 years old. And the reason I didn't get it was because I blocked. I blocked because I had the power. No one was going to tell Carmela she was powerless. I was going to prove it that I could control. I could control it all. I could control. I could eat one cookie. What are you talking about? I could buy the cookies for the children, my nieces and nephews, and I wouldn't touch their cookies. But I would also buy a whole bunch for myself. So therefore, I didn't need to eat theirs. And the reality is, it got me. And it got me to 315 pounds. And um, the reality is, it almost caused me not to have a career. When I was 17, I decided I wanted to be a nurse. I applied. I took the exams. I passed great I applied, and guess what? In the 60s, they could reject you because of weight. I was rejected. Nope, we can't accept you because you're too overweight. So, of course, the logical thing to do was go on a crash diet. Now, I always, you talk about when did this first occur that you had a weight problem? Well, my mother, may she rest in peace, told me the day I picked up table food was the day I became overweight. I chose always to eat. Food was my friend. Food was my go-to person, thing, solution. At about six or seven years old, my mom took my brother and I to the physician and, and a nutritionist, and the physician said, He's not going to have a problem. He's going to lose his baby fat. But she, she will be fat the rest of her life. And I thought, who is this guy, Mom? Why is he saying that to me? I don't know what the doctor saw, but he saw something. And it continued. It continued, and I did have a higher power in my life, and that higher power was God. But I just wanted to block I wanted things from my higher power, but I, I just wanted it the way I wanted it. I I don't know. I know he loved me, whatever, but I wanted what I wanted. So when it came to my career, I went on a crash diet. I went to health spa. I lost the weight. I got into nursing. I had a wonderful career, and then I let the weight continue to climb. And I thought, hmm, if they don't like the way I look, too bad. I'm in control. I can handle all of this. And I functioned, and I functioned, and I functioned. So I thought, but I got fatter and fatter and climbed. And finally, at 61 years old, I decided that I wanted to resign my position and move on and get a physical and move on to another job. So at 61, I left my place of employment, and I was going to move on. Went for a physical and was diagnosed. 
The gates of hell were coming. My legs were so swollen I could hardly walk. I had to go to the acupuncturist once a week to get out of the pain. My body was riddled, riddled with pain. Um, I cried, yeah, 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 yeah. Why? I don't understand why this is happening. And I blamed everybody and everything except for my willfulness. And the reality is I uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And my oncologist, who I had worked with for 20 years, uh, when he gave me the diagnosis, I said, so when is the surgery? I know the treatment is radical surgery. And he said, I'm not operating on you. He said, I'll kill you. I said, but if you don't operate, you will kill me. And he said, nope, not me. He said, I've worked with you too long. I refuse to operate. So I found another surgeon, and he did operate. And, yes, I did have complications, uh, a recovery that should have been a few weeks, a couple of months at the most, turned into four or five months and required two other surgeries. Um, and all through it, every time I recovered, I went back to my old friend, the solution of food. Finally, on one of the surgeries, the doctor, I, I had lost weight through the illness and whatever. I was losing some weight, and I decided to go to the famous diet club, and I lost 75 pounds. And I thought I was hot stuff, again in control, because I could eat one cookie. And unfortunately, I began to do the dance, up 10, down 10, up 10. I must have lost the same 10 pounds maybe five, six times. And lie, I lied to the surgeon. I said, no, doc, Camilla, you cannot gain an ounce. No, doc, that was the doctor's opinion, not to gain weight. Another doctor suggested lap band. I didn't know about the real doctor's opinion and the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And only at a family party, after I had been to some OA meetings and ran away from them from 2009 to 2013 when I got my abstinence, um, I was in and out of the rooms running because I thought these people were crazy. I didn't have any of their issues. I had nothing in common with them. And how could they say I was going to put this down forever? I couldn't possibly. Well, I don't know what happened, but at a family party, a young woman who was an anorexic bulimic, uh, I offered her a piece of cake. I was on my second piece. And... Um, she said, not today. And I said, oh, she's one of those. And she said, I have to tell you, Aunt Carmella, I know you all my life. You're a compulsive overeater. And again, I threw that one cookie. I can eat one cookie. And she said, I'm sorry to tell you, you're a compulsive overeater. Why don't you go back? Do you realize you have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind? And so I went back to a meeting. And I got a food sponsor, and my sponsor told me, you pick up sugar and I drop you like a hot potato. My sponsor had lost 250 pounds, so I thought this is what I wanted. I needed to lose 100 pounds. I was desperate. I needed to get the swelling down in my legs. 
I was in a car accident, rear-ended. I went to the neurosurgeon. He told me, if you don't lose this weight, you will be in a wheelchair. You will not be able to walk. It took me nine months. That was in November. It took me until July of the following year to put the food down because that's how powerful I thought I was. Well, I have it now, and it was given a gift. The gift was given to me in the sunlight one day down the shore when I was making lunch for my family. And I brought my abstinent food, and I was serving my family their lunch. And I thought, ah, I could do this tomorrow. And all of a sudden I heard, no, Carmela, it will be today. That was July 13th. Excuse me, July 22nd, 2013. And I put it down, and I was given a gift. The gift that day to put it down. I started going to meetings regularly. I didn't hear about the big book initially until I said at a meeting, I don't understand, I read this book, but I don't get it. Someone passed me the information for a vision for you, and I started listening. I found a sponsor in one of my face-to-face meetings that walked me through the steps. I didn't quite understand it initially, and all she said was, I don't care if you weigh and measure, but you have to be spiritually fit. And I didn't get that either, but now I certainly get it. I maintained my relationship with my food sponsor, who I treasure. To this day, um, she introduced me to many of her colleagues who have been abstinent for 20, 30 years. I admire them. I feel I haven't had it that long, but then I remember we all have it just for 24 hours. And then I said, God, Why did you choose me? Why did you give me this gift of losing 150 pounds? Why do I not have any pain anymore? How can I walk three to four miles a day? How is this possible? And now I'm 70 years old. Why? Why did you give it? And then I realized he gave it to me so that I can be there. I was a nurse and helped many people for many years. And now, in my senior years, I feel my role is to be a walking big book and demonstrate, show people that it is possible if we surrender our will to our higher power and we are powerless. Thank you so much for allowing me to share. Thank you, Carmela G. Thank you to all the panelists this morning. Panelist contact information will be provided at the conclusion of this meeting, so stay tuned for that. We'll now open the line for questions for our panelists, a wonderful opportunity to direct your questions to any of the panelists on the line this morning, and you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Who has a question this morning? regarding step one. 
I have a question. Yes, your name, please. Nancy Ivor. Good morning, Leah. Hi, Nancy. Anyone else? Hold on, Nancy. Anyone else Hi, with a question? Liz. Liz. Okay. Liz, what's the first letter of your oh, last name? Susan. Susan, and your first initial of your last name, please. Alice in love. Thank you. Who else? Great opportunity, particularly for the newcomers who may have questions about Suji. step one. Suji. Okay. Suji. And anyone else? Okay, well, let's get started with those. Nancy R., go ahead. Thank you. My name is Nancy R. I'm a grateful recovered compulsive overeater. I'd like to thank each of the panelists for their individual shares. I got a lot from them. And I'd like for them to address uh, how do they keep that idea fresh in their minds that their power is are there any rituals that they take on a daily basis to, you know, hone on that idea, keep it fresh in their in their memories? Thank you. Well, Zage, I can I can take that question on. Great, go ahead, Charles. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Nancy. Great question. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, Loud and clear. A, thank you. That's a great question. Um, what I do to keep it fresh. Is I stay in. Con- I love what working with others said. Um, that first page, uh, staying in contact with with newcomers and offering my services to you know because I learn from them too. Uh, going through the doc's opinion, you know, um, just just constantly. Like I could never get enough of that doc's opinion because you know me me doing that with them, they're helping me more than I could ever help them, right? And without conditions. We we're not in charge of of we we don't have power. Lack of power is our dilemma. But going through this literature and applying it to my life on a daily basis, this snake can can peel off some old layers that need to come off because there is more foods that I'm allergic to. Granted, granted that spiritual condition and going into a doctor opinion with others, you know, I. I Charles, we lost you. Yeah, my phone is acting crazy this morning, but yeah, um, that's that's what I do. I stay in constant constant contact with newcomers and and offer my service to dissect and chop up that doctor's opinion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other panelists? Hi, this is Nessa. Uh, can I ask them? Sure, go can ahead. I, sure. Hi. Um, something that I do is I I actually talk to myself and I remind myself. I say, Nessa. How has the, the food helped you? Has it worked for you in the past? And, you know, I do this when the, when the food calls to me, which, or when I feel hungry at a time when I shouldn't be hungry, like in between meals, uh, which by the grace of God and as a result of this, it doesn't happen very often. But I say that to myself. And then I say, you know, God is just you and me. You know, it's not just the food and me, it's God, just you and me dealing with the situation because, you know, when I'm feeling hungry, I know that it cannot possibly be um, a bodily hunger. It has to be something else is going on. And, and so I got I to gotta recognize that I got to deal with that something, um, not with the food. It's like, 
you know, when I got a traffic ticket and I ate, how did, how did that solve the issue of the traffic ticket or the fight I was going to have with my husband as a result of the traffic ticket? Um, right? It just, it just doesn't help. I have to uh, recognize that there's something else at work. And it's up to God and I to work on it, not the food and I. So I talk to myself and I, I say, this is, you know, and I say, the food did never work and it's not going to work now. Um, and I hope that helps. Thanks. Thank you very much. Nancy, we thank you for your question. Liz S., your turn. Hi. Um, I have a question regarding uh, talking to newcomers. I often talk to a lot of newcomers who are really uh, in, in dire need of help, but they're just not quite there. They're just not quite at the point of... Um, of surrender, which reminds me, you know, of that part of the big book where they refer to, you know, young people and and uh, and and raising raising their bottoms so they don't have to reach the point, as they say that we have reached. And I wonder if that one of you could speak to the point of of how can we communicate to newcomers that they they don't have to keep keep eating, they don't have to keep in in the disease any longer. You know, they can stop now. They can surrender now. They don't have to get to the point where it's much worse and to communicate that to them. Um, That's my question because I've talked to some people who are in pretty bad shape, but they're just not quite ready. And um, I wonder if one of you could, or more of you could speak to that point. Thank you, Liz. Panelists, who would like to respond? Hi, this is Carmela G. from New York. Go ahead, Carmela. No, it's Christine. <laughs> oh, Christine. I, yeah, it's okay. Um, uh, I I want to talk to that because it's quite interesting, me being in and out of these rooms so many times. I would say I had six stints in and out. Um it just took the right person, um, actually, for me. Um, it took my sponsor talking about the bid book. I heard the difference in her voice. There was something that was different than everyone else in that room that day. She felt recovered, that word. And um, it's something I wanted. So what I think is I go to a lot of meetings, and I, uh, and I try to share what I've learned. Some people don't like it. (laughs) I've been confronted recently about it. Uh, But it doesn't matter. What I have to share is my truth. What got me here? That I didn't have to do this anymore. If I had known this years ago and someone had said this to me, maybe I wouldn't have. I did take the path I took. I'm 52. I recovered at 50. Um, But really honestly is to share go to meetings and share share on the line share constantly and that's it Uh, and you know the interesting part is i try to get people um you know when someone says i want to eat this i want to eat that i want this in my food plan they've made their list of red yellows and greens they know what they can't and i always ask why are you including that what do you want to include that for that's like taking a shot of whiskey and putting it in your milk <laughs> and if i relate it back to the book they get it <laughs> and um and and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't i just really pray you know uh for people and i really try try to work with as many as I possibly can 
again. And I know when to let go today, too. And, um, and, and that is really the truth. And to answer the first person, I agree with working with others. I work with as many newcomers as possible. I try to go to one or two newcomer meetings a week. Um, and and um, step 10, keeping myself clean. That's how I keep myself um uh, you know, I get on my knees when I wake up and I say thank you, thank you, thank you for yesterday and thank you for getting me to here today. And I do step tens immediately before I'm about to harm, injure, or have a resentment or right after one of those. And I, I take my inventory because those are the things that I do to keep myself clean today. And, I, I you know, t- I work hard at this. And, um, and and I know others can see that and people I sponsor um, – and I try to, to sponsor youth in this program also because um, I, I agree, I understand what you're saying, but I also know that there's willful and willing, and I was willful for most of my career in this program and not willing, and that just had to strike me one day, and that's it. I pass. Thank Charles, you. you. Christine, oh, hold God. on, Charles, I got you. Hold on one second, but Carmela did want to respond, so let's let's have Carmela, and then we'll go to Charles. Hi, good morning. This is Carmela G again. Um, I just wanted to respond to that because um, when I first started program, people said you live in 10, 11, and 12, and, and that is true. But the reality is I must live in 1, 2, and 3, and every morning I must remind myself. And the, rea- the other piece of reality is we how we project to people, how we live our life speaks volumes for the program. How we are, how we communicate, if we're kind, if we have the the look of peace and serenity on our face, that speaks to the people. And I have to say that this year um, I, I saw someone that saw me a year ago and when uh, she's always had a weight problem, and she called me after seeing me this year, and she said, I've been fighting asking you, how did you do it? Because not only are you slim now, but you have such joy about you. You have such serenity about you. What did you do? And what I did was the 12 steps. And the principle of step one is honesty. And I didn't flower it. I honestly told her. I worked a 12-step program. I surrendered to my higher power. And um, I think that that's our role as recovered compulsive overeaters. And that is the one way that we can carry the message wherever we are be it in the rooms or be it in a cab here in Manhattan. So um, that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. Thank you for allowing me that. Thanks, Carmela. Charles, you'd like to respond as well. Yeah, thank you, Leah. I just I just wanted to take a stab at this and be one of the lions at the kill because this is just this is, is good. And, Liz, I so identify with that. Um, you know, I, I just got to say what the big books say, right? I have to quit playing God, and, and, and I want to be more like Dr. Bob, right? Like, um, 
just have compassion for people. And we don't know who, we don't have the power to see who's going to get it. We don't know who's going to be willing. But if they're on this line, it's an opp- we have an opportunity. We have a responsibility to uh, attempt, right? And if they're not willing, you already know what's going to happen. They ain't going to call you back, but there's more. So we just stay in position, play our position, and, if, you know, if we, we, we can't keep it unless we give it away. But I remember being, like, a sponsor, newly recovered, and I'm like, yo, man, why this person ain't getting it? I don't have no control, like page 30 says, five times. I don't have no control of who's going to get it. I don't even know if I'm going to get it. I just thank God for the willingness and keep going. That person don't get it. It's all right. I love you. But the, I'll keep the light on and the door open and just go to the next one because there's more. And with that, I pass. Beautiful. Thank you, panelists. And thank Bye. you, Liz S., for the question. I'm sorry? All right. Well, let's move on to Susan L., please, for her question. Hello? Sorry, uh, this is Nessa R. I also wanted to chime in, but I just uh, had a pro- trouble unmuting. Okay, um, Nessa R. Go ahead. Susan L., hold on. We'll come right back to you. Go ahead, Nessa. Very quick. I, I agree with Charles on the willingness issue. I have to recognize I cannot make anybody willing. Uh, willing. But what I do is I tell uh, people how I handled it when I was first abstinent. And for me, there was there were two keys. One is a clearly defined food plan, um, which you know, with my sponsees, I tell them you either go to a nutritionist and get a well-defined uh, way and measure food plan, or I can give you the one I use. Um, and then the second thing is uh, recognizing that I need to do it one day at a time, or if necessary, only one meal at a time. You know, can I stay abstinent one day on this plan? Just one day, can I do it? I probably can. And if that seems too daunting, I say, okay, can I stay abstinent till lunchtime, which means I'm just going to have an abstinent breakfast and then nothing until lunchtime. Can I do that? Can I do it for a few hours? Yes, I can. And then at lunchtime, I do the exact same thing. Can I stay abstinent from lunchtime until dinner time and breaking it down in manageable periods of time um, especially for somebody who's coming from a lot of weight to uh, and is going to be experiencing genuine hang- hunger because, you know, we're so used to so many more calories than we're going to be consuming um, on a new food plan. I mean, that, that to me becomes key, and that's what works for me. Um, and I, I tell that to people, and after that, it's just how willing they are, and I pass. Thank you for that, Nessa. And now, Susan L., you wanted to ask a question. Star one to unmute. Did you mean Sue G.? I believe there hi, Sue. I believe there was a Susan L. Okay, I'll hold. I'll wait. Did you Hi, get Marie M? Can you hear me? Marie M, I hear you, and I've written you on the list. Uh, Susan, is that you popping up on the line? Yes, it is. Okay, go ahead, please. Thank you. Oftentimes, if the sponsee picks up the food, breaks her abstinence, the sponsor says, well, you've not really taken step one. Go back to step one. 
meaning the sponsee does not believe she's powerless. Maybe she thinks she can have just one. I tend to think it's step three. She's not turning, not willing to turn it over to God. Can you share your take on this? And also, if the sponsee happens to be on step eight when the abstinence is broken and they return to step one or three for a bit, it is, is it okay that they then jump back to step eight after that or are they required to retake steps four to eight? But my main question was the first part. Okay, thank you. Panelists, which, who would like to respond to Susan's question? Hi, this is Nessa R. Go ahead, Nessa. Hi. Um, I honestly believe that when somebody picks up the food, what they are in fact saying is, um, I, I can control this thing and therefore I don't need God. If I can control the food and I'm not powerless, I don't need step one. Um, and if I'm saying I can control the food, then I definitely don't need to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Um, and step three is actually just a decision to do that. Uh, it's not actually turning um, my will and my life over to the care of God. I do that by working all the other steps. You know, the other thing is I cannot, I don't have access to God when I am worshiping another God, a small G God, which is the food. You know, the big G God is not going to compete with a small G God. If I want my food, God's going to say, you know what, go and be happy, do whatever you want, and when you need me, call me. Um, so if I'm in the food, I have no access um, to the real higher power. Uh, and for me, it is, it is definitely step one. If somebody in step eight picks up uh, a food, I, um, you do go back. You do go back to step one. Um, and the process of going through steps one through eight, assuming that this one is able to be back on track um, in the absent, with, with their abstinence, uh, is going to be probably much faster um, than the original process because there's going to be, um, you know, some knowledge base there to work with, but also um, a lot of the resentments and uh, fears have already been aired out, so the step four is going to be uh, much shorter than the original step four, but definitely there's no doubt that this is a step one issue. I'm saying, you know, God move over because the food can help me in ways that you can't, and I, uh, I can control this thing now because I've learned how. And with that, I pass. Hi, Leah. It's Christine. Can I share also? Please go ahead. Hi, this is Christine. Um, recovered compulsive overeater. Um, I was listening, and I, I'm, I'm really, I was thinking about this. Um, when someone picks up the food, um, that became their solution right then and there. They stopped working that, the solution of the big book, and they used the food to solve the problem. So what I tend to do, especially in the beginning, is I give them a writing and I try to get them back on track and see if they can get about, you know, two or three weeks underneath their belt again and and see where they are. Uh, and uh, But if someone's on step eight and they've picked up the food, I have an unmanageability questionnaire that uh, my sponsor gave me and I give my sponsees at the beginning of sponsoring them. I actually will tell them to fill out that that uh, where has your life become unmanageable again, and they fill it out, and then I quickly take them through two, three, four, all the way back up to where they were. 
because maybe there's something they didn't clean up um, and see how they do. And that's that's how I handle it. Um, and I, I and I do this with the guide of my sponsor because I'm still learning. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's my answer. That's it. I pass. Thank you very much. Anyone else want to respond? Okay. Well, thank you, Susan L., for that question. Now let's move on to Sue G., please. Hi. Thank, this is Sue G. from Michigan. Thank you for um, letting me participate. Um I'm sorry, I have forgotten the name of the last person. I've been keeping it in my brain. Uh, the last person who spoke, this question is for her, the one that waited till she was, was 71 or something like that before it all of a sudden clicked with her. I'm wondering um, what it was. I know that someone said to go back to OA and said that you know that mentioned the big book, but can you pin it pin down for me more of what you think happened, what took place in your either your mind or your willingness or something that made the difference after so many years? Um, I've kind of gone through that, and um, I'm just freshly starting again um, with vision for you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sue G. And that would be directed to Carmela G. Yes, thank you. Carmela, Star One. Hi, this is Carmela G. Um, yes, Sue, I just had my 70th birthday, so I didn't get it till I was 68. And what made me get it? Uh, what changed my mind when I went into the rooms and I could not relate to all the qualifications. I couldn't relate to anything that any of the people in OA were saying. But my scientific brain, being in, in, in nursing, uh, related to when I started hearing about the doctor's opinion and the allergy of the body, and the obsession of the mind. That's what kind of hooked me in. And then I related to a, um, a famous saint, and she's called the Little Flower, and she talks about all of us being unique, and we're like flowers, and how the flowers all can grow and be in a beautiful bouquet, roses, daisies, lilies, um, and none overpowering the other, but all maintaining their individuality and um, surviving. And that's when I thought, wow, we're like flowers. So we all have the same part of the disease. We all have the lying, the deceit, the denial, the desperation, um, the control, all of those personality traits. Yes, we all have them, but each one deals with them separately. 
so that as individuals we are unique. And when I realized that, yes, I couldn't relate to the rooms what people were sharing because I never did any of those things, but I could relate to lying to my surgeon and telling him I would never gain an ounce and I would be on the diet and manipulating people so that they could do what I wanted. Um, Yeah, I could relate. And it took me a while, but only by working the book. That's how I found out. So thanks for asking me that question and bringing it to the forefront of my brain. Thank you very much, Carmela, and thank you, Suji, for the question. Marie M., you had a question. Star one. Yes, hi, Marie. Hi. Um, excuse me if you have trouble understanding me in advance. Um, I've been in the program 22 years. I've left a couple times. But I always come back, and um, I've been abstinent now for about a year. And in that year, I've only been able to lose 20 pounds, and I don't. I don't know why. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, to me, that I'm 72 years old, and all people tell me was, "Well, you lose it slower at your age." And um, I am. Um, I just need, I just want to understand what I can do different because I do have a plan that eliminates all trigger foods. And um, I don't overeat. I was never an overeater. I was a grazer. I don't like a lot of normal foods. And so I developed the habit as a young adult to uh, replace when I was hungry and couldn't get food that I could stand to taste, then I would substitute it with more um, desserts and junk food so I'd feel full. Uh, that's all gone, and I sponsor people, and um, everybody says they want what I've got, but I'm falling apart inside because I'm still obese, and nothing seems to move that. Thank you. Thank you, Marie, for your question. Panelists, who would like to respond? Hi, it's Carmela G. Hi, Carmela. Go ahead. Um, Marie, I I was also told, I thought I, quote, unquote, you know how they say you plateau, and I found it extremely frustrating and degrading. Uh, because I thought, you know, that song, I'm dancing as fast as I can, and nothing was working. But I also, as a nurse, I said, I don't need any experts on food. I'm the expert. And uh, when I began program, food was very wise, and my physician also um, said to me, you must see a nutritionist. And um, I stopped being the expert, and I started opening my mind. And I was blessed. Um, unfortunately, she's no longer in business in New York, uh, but I was blessed to to be given the name of someone 
and um, she looked at everything that I wanted on my plan that I could tolerate, and um, she set up the plan with me, and she um, said to me, if you work it and just walk a little bit and do some little bit of exercise because I couldn't really move so much, uh, it did work, and it did come off. Uh, sometimes not as fast as I thought, but then now that I look back, I think it came off pretty quickly. So um, maybe you need to look at seeking outside help if you haven't already done that. But that's what worked for me, and that's what I thought I would share with you. So... Um, one day at a time, and and know that, yes, there is a plan for Marie. Thank you. Thanks, Carmela. Thank you, Marie, uh, for that question. Okay, just, just <laughs> of course, uh, just a reminder that the big book uh, certainly encourages that we seek outside uh, help when needed. Uh, we are not medical experts here, and uh the big book certainly encourages and suggests that we do seek out medical professionals in order to help us in these other areas. Charles, you want to respond quickly, and then we'll move on to another question, please. Absolutely, real quick. Um, ditto to um, my, my, my fellow panelists, uh, it, seek outside help. I'll give you an example. I'm right there with you, sis. I understand what, you, what you're saying, and I'll give this example, my Virginia Beach experience. Um. You know, when I thought it was all down. And, you know, just to give you this rare hope, just that experience alone and, 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 the, and the spiritual connection I have, like, wow, you know what? Yeah, I could, I could get rid of that too. I could shed this skin. And I shed it, and, and, and yeah, it works. It works. It really does. So there's more. Nobody here is perfect, and, and we go through a transition on this journey. As we trudge the road together, we will learn from each other. And that's all I got. Thanks. Super. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Marie, for your question this morning. Who else has a question for our panelists? I have a question. This is Vivian from Vermont. Vivian, hold on one second. Anyone else? Elaine B. Elaine B. Christy B. Christy B? Yes. Okay. And we'll take one more. Anyone else with a question? Okay, I'll take that as a no. Vivian, your turn. If you could give us the first letter of your last name, please. Okay, this is Vivian M. M is Mary. Thank you, Vivian M. Go ahead. Okay, my question is, uh, to anyone who'd like to respond to any of the people, um, what is your personal definition or perception of your higher power in your life? Okay. Panelists? It's Christine. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Hi. Christine, compulsive overeater. Um, my definition of a higher power, <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's actually, I had somebody, Joe M., actually text me that. 
and uh, asked me that question, and I loved it. You know, at first I wanted to please her, which is ridiculous, <laughs> but um, it was it, it is all encompassing. Uh, it is I. I it's so great that I can't ever imagine how great this ever was. I always had an incredible concept of a higher power that I kind of developed at age nine. I went to church with my father, and um, he had such a punishing way, his fingers in my back, asking me to sit up straight. And at that day, I can tell you the mass, the place where I was, I made a decision to get something that wasn't like what I was sitting at, and I and I made a decision back then at age nine. It's hard to imagine, but after doing this, this became something bigger, limitless, boundless. It is so great that I can't even tell you. Um, it's bigger than I ever thought it was. Peaceful, um, more peaceful, more. Um, I, 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 you know, it's unbelievable to me that I, I, I that I have this concept. It's actually a little scary at times because I have such um, trust in whatever guides me and leads me to to uh, to this. As as this morning on the treadmill, uh, coming up with a disclaimer about my story, that's not me. That had nothing to do with me because I wanted to let everyone know, okay, that this is my path. I, ch- I chose that path. Uh, my willingness came when it came. But he wanted me to let you know that I have no no uh, anger about my story at all. I accept it all. I accept and that's it, you know. It's all-encompassing, all-powerful, limitless, boundless, incredible. And I pass. Thanks. Thank you very much. Charles, go ahead. Yeah. My higher power is definitely, one thing I can tell you is definitely not. It's not a human. It's not a doorknob. But it's a creative intelligence. It's uh, the sunlight of the spirit. Um. It was Virginia Beach, and 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 actually, it's beach, and 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 its movements and the waves and and stuff like that. It's it, it's something that that I can't. It's so big I can't describe it. It's it's undescribable, undeniable. It will never fail me, and and when I really trust and believe, you know, uh, it, it's just it's just it, it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's it's life, it's love, it's love. That's what it is for me. Thanks. Thank you, Charles. And thank you, Vivian M., for your question. Elaine B., you're up. Elaine Leia, B. And thank you for your service, Leia, and thank you to everybody on the panel for your insights and experience. My question is similar to... One asked earlier, but uh, but I, I'd love to hear how people who have been working with somebody who is in step nine or even ten, eleven, and twelve, and has picked up the food. Exactly, uh, I, I'm looking for some information about how you bring them back to step one. What is it that you cover? What are your approaches? And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. Panelists? Hi, Leah. It's Christine. Yes, please. Thanks. 
Okay. So I'll go through it again. <laughs> but with me, uh, when so- if somebody is is on a, a 10, 11, and 12, number one, if I, I kind of will notice they're not doing 10s. <laughs> so 10s are uh, – a way I practice my 10s is that the moment that um, something occurs, a resentment, um, a harm, or I'm about to do harm, uh, I, I do a step 10 myself, okay? And how I teach uh, the steps is that in the beginning, to make sure everyone is off and doing it, I have a phone number with a phone machine, and um, they are to, to uh, do it the moment it occurs, okay, and then pull their car over. So I'm going to give you an example. For me, impatience was the first thing I worked on because I can only work on one at a time because I believe my higher power brings forward one of my character defects to work on at a time, okay? So the moment I am impatient driving, I never forget this. It took me 25 minutes to go a five-minute ride. I have to come up with my character defect. I am impatient, okay? I pull the car over. I call that number and I say I was impatient because I do a four, six, seven, eight, nine, and then I call my sponsor and admit that I was impatient, a five, okay? So I will notice that people I sponsor, if they're not doing tens, automatically I start to ask a bunch of questions because I'm not getting phone messages from them, you know, and, um, and I'm not, I don't answer that phone. I just listen at night. Uh, and after a month they move off and they do it themselves and they go to God and they take care of this. And sometimes when the big one comes, they call me and we talk about it to make sure they're getting their part correct because the column four and five for me, I do five column worksheets are really important. So, when they're at 10, 11, and 12, I kind of notice. <laughs> uh, but if they're, uh, again, and we get to 10, maybe something struck their ego. I had somebody get hit really hard with their ego, and she was back at one. Hard for her to hear that. She doesn't even want to do that work, and that's okay. Willingness will come. But go back. I went back to the unmanageability. Where is your life unmanageable? What happened that made it unmanageable that looking at other diet plans and maybe taking a diet pill became of interest to you? Where is that? That's what this individual is talking to me about. You know, how did that happen? And so we go back and then we look at unmanageability. Then we go, are you willing, you know, to turn this over? Yes. You know, four. Now, everything that you wrote on your unmanageability questionnaire, now we're going to do a step four on it. Boom. And now back, and hopefully they're back at nines, making their amends if they have to, and moving on. And back on to 10, 11, and 12. And that's if you have more questions, call me. I'll tell you more about it. But that's it. That's what I do. I pass. Thank, thank you very much, Christine. Any other panelists want to jump in on that? I'll take that as a no. Elaine, thanks for the question. Christy B., your turn. Yes, um, I want to know how I can find a good sponsor that uh, would sponsor me uh, from the vision way, the vision for you way. That's my question. Okay, Christy, are you able to join us during the week, uh, Monday through Friday? There's a wonderful opportunity. We're here from 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and uh, at the closing of the 9 a.m. meeting, 
there is an opportunity for sponsors to come forward and announce themselves as available, and they offer their phone numbers. There's also an opportunity at that time for people seeking a sponsor to give their contact information, so that's a great opportunity. We also have a member contact list. Uh, if you go on the website, again, the, our web address is a avisionforyou.info. I'll give that again at the conclusion of this recording. If you go on the website, there is a member contact list, and we in invite you to register on the member contact list. There are clear directions for your success. And once on the member contact list, you'll see approximately 2,000 uh, visionaries, so to speak, uh, vision for you uh, names and phone numbers, uh, a bit of effort and footwork on your part, uh, I'm sure you will find uh, success in matching up with a sponsor. So, and uh, we'll give that information again at the conclusion of this recording. Okay, thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Christy B. All right, well, we're at 10 o'clock. Are there any other uh, questions for our panelists at this point before we wrap up? This is Jan J. Jan. J. Judy yes. K. Judy K. Anyone else? Laura D. Laura D. Okay, thank you. Jan G, go ahead. Hi, thank you so much for taking this call. I've been listening to A Vision for You for about two years. I've done the steps twice. I've not picked up my trigger foods, which for me is flour and sugar, but I, I definitely take in extra food. And, um, you know, a sponsor just told me that, you know, she was going to drop me because I took extra food, and I'm confused about what I should do now. I think being dropped finally got me to a place where I want to be totally, totally honest and start again. I just, you know, I feel like I go to a certain point and then take the extra food and then I never have a chance to give back. And I just don't know where to go now. I, I want to do the program exactly the way it should be done. I am totally willing now. So if anybody could help me and tell me, you know, what they think my path should be now because that's what I want to do to follow it. So thank you. Thanks, Jan. Hi, this is Nessa R. Hi, Nessa. Go ahead. Hi. Um, this is just based on my, my own experience. I, um, I, uh, I not only get triggered by specific foods like sugar and flour and, you know, the usual stuff, but I also get triggered by volume. Um, I can binge pretty much on anything. Um, the weirdest thing I've ever binged on was um, apple peels. And it took me a long time. I was like nine years in program before I got to this point where I was willing to uh, weigh and measure my food. And this is the way that I have addressed the issue of, of excess volume. Um, you know, I eat three and weigh, three weighed and measured meals um, every day. Um, very specific uh, food plan that I've committed to my sponsor, and 
Um, I have a little bit over four years of recovery, so I don't do this anymore. But um, at the beginning, for the, the first few months, year, I don't know, I, I'm not very uh, good in the, with the passage of time, but certainly at the beginning of, of this recovery, I was committing my food to my sponsor um, before I ate it, which meant I um, every every night or every morning I would email my food saying, you know, for breakfast I'm going to eat X ounces of this and X ounces of that, and for my lunch X ounces of this, X ounces of that, etc. And the same thing with dinner. And it took me a while to really, really get to to this point um, of willingness. Um, and the excuse I was giving myself was. Well, how is this gonna be different than all the other diets? Am I am I not going into the diet mentality when I start weighing and measuring? But the truth is that I gotta be rigorously honest with myself that um, large quantities of anything, instead of satisfying me, will uh, intensify my craving. And so I bought a digital scale, which is quite very very cheap, you know, fourteen fifteen bucks at Walmart. And I weigh and measure everything that goes into my mouth. And um, outside of that, I don't eat anything else. And I know when my portion is finished, there is no more food coming. And that gives me such a freedom because I don't have to obsess about, oh, can I have a little bit? What else can I eat? What's in the refrigerator that I can sneak through? It's finished and it's done with. Um, and that's just what, what works for me. Thanks. Thanks, Nessa. Any other panelists want to jump in before I move on? Okay, then. Let's move on to Judy Kay. Thank you, Jan, for your question. Let's move on to Judy Kay. Thank you, Leah. Um, this is Judy Kay. I have a question for Charles. Charles, when you said that you had trouble with rice, whatever color it might be, um, was that during a period of abstinence or was that prior to your abstinence? And if it was during abstinence, your abstinence, did you consider that trouble as having broken your abstinence or did, or did you just say, think of it as a learning experience along the way as you refine your abstinence. And thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thanks, Judy. Charles H., we're looking for Charles H. Charles? Blue rice, green rice, brown rice, white rice, Charles. You there, Charles? Judy, perhaps he had to step off the line for the time being. So if we don't hear from him, of course, he makes himself very available uh, for one-on-one questions. conversations, okay? Thank you for your question, Judy Kay. Thank you. Yep, sure. Laura D., your question, please. Hi, Leah. Thank you. This is Laura D. I have been in this program for a while, but I'm still stuck at step one because the rational side of me says, hey, behavior is a choice. 
No one's putting a gun to your head and saying you need to eat sugar and flour. And on the other hand, I read the doctor's opinion and then other places in the big book where they say it's a disease like diabetes and it would be foolish not to take your medicine. And you can't control it any more than you can control diabetes, which I find very discouraging as a fact. So my question is, if the behavior is a choice, but we also have this disease, it, step one begins with putting the food down, but I'll be damned if I can put it down. I've gone to meetings, I've listened to meetings, I've done the steps, but the actual act of putting the food down is where it's so basic and fundamental and important. And I, I just, I don't know if it's an unwillingness, it's certainly wrecking my life, or or what it is to just help me get to that point. I, I hate the food, but at the same time, I can't imagine living without it. Um, thank you to all the panelists. That's my question. Thank you, Laura. We've been there, too. Who would like to respond to Laura's question? Hi, Leigh. It's Carmela G. Go ahead, Carmela. Laura, it's it, this is something we've all gone through, and um, I put the the day I put the food down, I white knuckled it for about six months until I could get through the steps. Uh, yeah, I I mean, food food wasn't just energy for my body, which I use now. Food was everything to me. Food, I couldn't even imagine putting this stuff down. Uh, how the heck was I going to live? And, yeah, it was tough, but the reality is I chose life. I wanted to live. I didn't want to die, and I didn't want to be in a wheelchair. So in order to do that, I had to white-knuckle it. And it was someone on the line of a vision when I called her. She said, you're white-knuckling. You need to work the steps a little bit harder. And I didn't even know at that time what white-knuckling was. Um, But now I am blessed. I can sit at a table of food and only take what is my food. So um, there is hope. Uh, It's just a matter of working it. Thank you. Thanks, Hi, Leah. Go ahead, Christine. Christine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi, Christine, compulsive overeater. Um, I all want you to say hi, Christine. So I pause each time I say that. Um, I think it's funny. Um, uh, I I want to share about my history and how I kind of uh, walk, when I walked into these rooms. This is something I realized pretty rapidly. God led me to these rooms. I really truly believe that but it was my job to put down the food, okay? So when I walked in here, I had to be willing to say exactly what Carmela just said, to white-knuckle it, okay? And then three weeks later, that woman who worked this, my sponsor, Barbara A., who speaks on a vision every now and then, um, sat next to me and told me the people she knows who recover, uh, compulsive, the real compulsive overeaters, need to work the steps. So I made a promise to her that I would work those steps as vigorously and as quickly as I could um, uh, and not pick up the food a day at a time until I was through. And that's what I did, and that is why I'm here. 
But I will say what I've learned as I do work this program and work my 10 steps and, and do all of this is that every time all God wants from me is willingness. Okay, so I walk forward with character defects, first my food, then with character defects. And when I go forward with each one of these and I'm willing to give them up, okay, um, I have to be willing. That's all my higher power wants. And once I am, I get this grace this incredible grace that comes. So I became willing, and then all of a sudden the food didn't bother me because I was really, really willing to try anything I could not to put that first bite in my mouth. Now the same occurs with character defects. I shake like it's the food. When I don't want, I was giving up people-pleasing. I'm on my knees crying. Oh, my God, I got to do this. Well, all I had to be was willing. Once I became willing not to think, uh, you know, that I, I want this person to like me. I want this person to like me. I would go, no, 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 in my head. I can't do that. Just like the food. I can't do this to myself. The first day I spent hours going, I can't do that. Second day I spent half a day going, I can't do that. The third day it didn't happen anymore because I was willing to truly give it up. And the moment I was, God came in and gave me his grace. And that's it. Between food, character defects, this is how I work it. And it's the most amazing, beautiful process. So, you know, try it. It works. And that's it. Thank you, Laura D., for your question. As you posed your question, I thought of page 152. The text reads, He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. We have shown how we got out from under. And that's exactly what we heard this morning from our four recovered panelists who shared their experience with step one, the conclusion of the mind, so that they could be willing and open uh, for the process of recovery. Thank you to all our panelists this morning, Christine T., Charles H., Nessa R., Carmela G., and, of course, thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning, and I'll close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us, Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.